Welcome to the Castle Creek Launchpad Fund podcast series. I'm Catherine Kane. I'm here with Shamir Karkal, who is the co-founder and chief strategy officer at SILA, a banking as a service platform. He was the co-founder of Simple, the first neobank in the US, and he's also an advisory board member for our fund. Welcome. Thank you for having me and glad to be here. The SILA website describes the company as a sandbox. How does that fit into the world of banking as a service? Fundamentally, our mission is to make it easy for, for innovators, entrepreneurs, builders everywhere to program with money and financial. So what that means is our customers are usually fintech startups, really anybody who wants to build a financial application and do it on, you know, in a modern tech platform where they take money from somewhere and run it through some funds flow and then pay somebody else out. So it's a set of APIs using a system called REST over HTTP. What the platform fundamentally does for our customers is it handles a lot of the heavy lifting required to make and handle complex funds flows. For example, if you are trying to build a PFM application, right, to help people better manage their savings or better manage their credit scores or get access to credit or whatever, There's the, all of them fundamentally have the problem of onboarding a user that could be an individual or a business, verifying their identity because financial services in the US, just like everywhere else, is heavily regulated. And the cornerstone of that is KYC, KYB, BSA, AML, all of the infrastructure required to say with a reasonable certainty that you know who your customer is. And then once you've identified the customer, you typically have to link to an external source of funds. It could be a bank account, it could be a debit card, and then pull in money, hold it on our platform in a wallet or a virtual account, and then do your funds flow. We differ from a lot of other BAS platforms, and there's a whole industry of these, and there are folks who are more generalist, the folks who are more specialized. We tend to be a little bit more specialized in ACH payments. It's about a 50-year-old payment system, quite antiquated now because, you know, it's based all on fixed format text files, but it does move 70 plus trillion dollars a year in the US. And it's something that modern developers just struggle to even understand because <laughs> it's it's something that was built in the 70s and the technology has changed a lot since then. So we give our customers an easy to use, straightforward API layer, which is designed for modern applications and developers understand that and they can use it. And it gets them a long way in terms of being compliant, in terms of getting their application working, and then getting all the payments flows that they need set up and running. A sandbox itself is a term in the technology industry to describe a space or more likely a technology platform, which looks like it's real, but isn't actually real. So most API platforms out there have a set of APIs, which are your production APIs. And when you connect to those, in our case, you will be onboarding real people. You need to feed it real data, otherwise it will not accept, you know, you can put in John Smith, but if you put in a fake address and a fake SSN, John Smith will be rejected. <laughs> and then if you link a bank account, you can pull in real money and transfer it and pay out. And this will, you know, initiate ACH and card payments and everything else through the card networks or the Fed or whatever. Um, that's great, that's what you need to do, but you also need a test environment. You need an environment where you can be like, hey, I'm still building. And the modern way of building code is very much of like, let's just write something, test it, and, and have it do something 
almost like trivially easy, like just connect it to one API and hit that. Okay, we solved that, so now we can connect. Now let's do the KYC piece. And then once that's working, we'll add the next piece and the next piece and the next piece, the next piece. Now, if you're gonna build that way, and it's a very good way of building things sort of incrementally, but very quickly using agile methodologies, uh, you can't do that in production. Right, like you can't use real data. You'll be programming with lots of real money and things will be breaking all the time. So you need a test environment. And that's very standard in API platforms to have what's called a sandbox, where there are a set of APIs. They look exactly like production APIs, but they're not real. So you can feed it John Smith with a fake address and one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine as an SSN. It's formatted properly. It'll accept John Smith. <laughs> Right. And uh, and then you will be able to connect a bank account and initiate an ACH and all of this, but no real money will move. And a lot of the things are designed so that you can quickly build your application, test it. And once it's working in the sandbox, you can take it to production. And in production, you don't need to do much testing at all. If it works in the sandbox, 99% of the things will work exactly the same in production. And now you just need to get going. Pretty much all modern API platforms come with a sandbox. The real problem tend to come in when you're connecting to systems like the Fed's ACH system or, or Visa, where there isn't necessarily a great way of doing testing. And so it's, it's hard to build new applications to those very quickly. If I have something I'm developing and I want to make sure it works, whether I'm a larger organization or a fintech startup, can I join your sandbox? Yes, completely. And in fact, the sandbox is open to anybody on the internet with an email. If you were a developer, you could create a new application. You create a set of what's called uh, API keys, then take those keys and drop them into your code base and start hitting up the APIs in the sandbox. Now to get production access is a lot more complex because this is financial services. It's heavily regulated. We have bank partners whom we work with where all the funds are stored and we work in conjunction with them. And so there is a pretty rigorous onboarding process to make sure that any application that you may build in the sandbox is compliant and reasonably risk-free before it goes into production. A lot of that work we do in terms of like the documentation, the reviews or demos and all of that, and then upload that to our bank partners to have them sign off on it before customers get production access. How do you folks address the clarity around third-party relationships and issues that regulators are voicing concern about? In the U.S., I feel like the regulatory system and the legal system, really, it's very much designed for the pre-fintech world. The last major rewrite to the laws of the financial system was really Dodd-Frank. There wasn't much fintech around in, in 2010 at all. What ends up happening is that companies like Scylla, and in fact, all of our customers are viewed by the regulators as third-party service providers to the bank, which is, if you think about it, it's, it's a little bit weird, right? I mean, it, when you look at the way that the funds flow and the business and everything else operate, it looks more like the banks are service providers to our customers through us. If you're a customer of a neobank, for example, you would go and say, hey, I bank with Chime or, or, or with Simple back in the day or with one of 20 other neobanks. But from the regulatory perspective, none of those, all those neobanks are really service providers to their underlying bank partners. And so the regulators don't directly regulate most of the fintech industry. There are a few fintechs who have gone out and got their own bank license or their own XYZ license, like state money transmitters or, or a few others, you know, broker dealers, for example, depending on what they're doing. But for the most part, fintechs are not directly regulated. And so they get regulated, but through this 
third-party vendor management system. It wasn't really designed for this purpose at all. But most of the time, the regulators don't have the tools to regulate that directly. So they have to regulate the banks. And then what ends up frequently happening is that it just means that the banks have to implement all these complex and onerous new requirements, not just on the on their lending partners or their crypto partners, but on everybody, right? Because it's part of a third third party vendor management system. And you're saying, hey, the third party vendor management system isn't working great. So you have to upgrade it. And now there's new requirements for everybody. And you're like, well, 90% of it was fine. <laughs> you only had really problems with this. And really your relationship with Visa or with FIS or whomever doesn't require any <laughs> changes at all. It's really this one slice, but the regulators can't regulate that one slice. And so the reality is that bank partners in this space have to be very, very careful about third-party vendor management. If I were a bank going through you folks, can I be like, okay, Sila has vetted these partners. Does that add a layer? of simplifying because you're doing it for everyone. Oh, yes. Dramatically, I would say. You have to realize that bankers generally understand banking, but the people in fintech tend to understand the tech a lot better than they understand the fin. So a lot of fintech entrepreneurs like me, honestly, 15-ish years ago, were like, oh, we have a great idea about an app we want to build. We see a problem in our lives, our friends' lives, or somewhere in the system. And we are like, hey, we can solve this problem by building this application. And a lot of the time, folks don't even realize that this is in any way financial in the sense that they view it as I'm helping folks. I'll make up an example. In the construction management industry, because I've been in that industry for whatever, 10, 15 years, 20 years, whatever. And I'm, I, I see the problem that this software needs. It needs to do this and manage project, manage construction, and then do the invoicing and then the payments to like all these different subcontractors and subcontractors and subcontractors and all of that. You're like, wait, wait, wait. The moment you said the word payment and you look at what you're actually building, like 60% of it is fintech. <laughs> you have this like, UI layer for project management, but then the rest of it is all is all about moving the money. And you know, large construction projects are really quite complex between the banks financing it and whoever is putting in the equity, different levels of equity, payments coming in sometimes, payments going out sometimes. There's never it never lines up exactly. <laughs> and and you look at all of that and you're like, this is actually a fairly complicated fintech startup that you're building. But folks who start that don't think of it that way. And many, many times it's for them quite a rude awakening when they're like, yeah, I just need a platform where I can take this money and then hold it. And then based on this set of rules, I'm going to pay out those people. And then after those people pay me, I'll pay out these other people. I'm like, yeah, that makes sense when you explain it like as a technologist. You start talking to a banker, they're just going to be like, oh my God, you're going to need like 36 different accounts and you're going to have to KYC and KYB, like 250 people. And and and, and the technologists are like, what are the words coming out of your mouth mean? <laughs> right? I've never heard this KYC thing that you speak of. <laughs> yeah, take it from here and put it over there, right? Like, isn't that a, a simple API platform I can do that on? Well, there is a simple API platform you can do that on, but we do live in a heavily regulated world. Once they grok that, oh, money and financial services is even more regulated than construction. <laughs> and they're like, okay, yes, I have to go through all these complex processes. I get it. But people coming out of like advertising, for example, or other areas which are not very regulated at all, just struggle to even understand. I can't just hit the API and do that. And it's like, 
you can once you get all these documents out of the way and all these approvals and and, and get a lot of lawyers happy and, it, and sometimes the answer is no you you actually cannot do that it makes sense i can see why you would want to do that but it is technically illegal <laughs> and so what we do and, and i say we in the sense that our compliance team heavily does is in in a in a lot of ways helping those early builders understand what they can and cannot do technologically but also legally and compliance wise and then help them get to the point where we are like okay we can take you to one of our bank partners and say hey here is a construction management application and here is how all its kyc policies work and they're going to use our apis to kyb all the contractors and the subcontractors and a lot of the sub subcontractors actually just individuals will just kyc those here's where we'll create the wallets here's where we'll create accounts here's how all the money will come in here's how it will be held here's how all the bsa aml ofac truth and savings maybe truth in lending and all the other 16 laws that impact this are appropriately handled in the terms of service, the legal documents, the policies and procedures, and the disclosures. It's all on their website. Here's the demo app. You can walk through it with your compliance team. Everything will work exactly as we, you know, as you would expect. And now please approve this. Now, of course, there's always going to be questions and back and forth and lots of work in, in kind of like tweaking things. But at least it's something that the bankers can, can understand. Do you have any sense overall of the future of community banking and the role it plays in fintech? For community banks, it's both a time of huge problems and of huge opportunity. And the real pressure on the industry is just that the costs keep rising. Every new regulatory requirement, it just gets more complicated and more complexity is more cost. And at the same time, there's a huge pressure of technological change. And if you look at the average customer of a lot of banks, big and small, you'll find that their average customer is 50 plus. And you're like, well, what, what about all the 20 to 50 people? Where are they? And they're in the newer banks, in the newer bank. And guess what? One generation is going to take over eventually. And the newer customers, they expect banking to be a thing that they do on their phone. So service is all about the mobile app. And that's a completely different system. So it's the basis of competition has changed. The costs have increased dramatically. So then the question is, what do you do as a small to mid-sized community bank? My idea there is that you have to become a specialist in something. And you can become a very narrow specialist and say, hey, we're just going to go all in on small business lending, or we have to go all in on commercial real estate or mortgages or something else. And I do think you have to become a technology or, or start becoming a technology company. The, the future of money is technological, right? In 20, 30 years from now, everybody, like 99.9% .9 of people will do 99.9% .9 of their banking through their mobile phone, through their computer, through their watch. I don't know whatever new device, but, but it's all going to be electronic. So you have to be able to compete in that world. And to, to do that, I, I think you you kind of have to dive into it, engage with fintech, which is just the leading part of the kind of the tech revolution. And, and I think a lot of the bank partners who are in the fintech space are doing exactly that. The fintech partner ecosystem is dominated by banks that look like small community banks because they were, <laughs> you know, they were, they were small community banks 
5, 10, 15 years ago. I, I don't think it's a panacea or a one size fits all. And, and you know, I, would, I wouldn't advise any community bank to just jump into the fintech world and, and start signing deals with everybody because there is a lot of risks and problems. We just talked about third party vendor management, for example. But I do think it is one route towards a future where community banks can continue to thrive and be an essential part of the American financial system. And I, and I like that future more. I, I don't really like a future which is dominated by like 10 or 15 or 20 or even 50 large banks, right? I'd like to see at least a few hundred, maybe a few thousand banks doing all sorts of different things and, and supporting an ecosystem with, I don't know, tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of apps. All right. It was great talking to you. Same here, Catherine. Thank you for having me.